Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we help you bridge the empathy gap to bring you a valuable new understanding of some of the most innovative ideas and trends shaping the future of business and customer experience. I'm Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing. And I'm Andy McMillan, CEO at User Testing. And today we've invited two guests to our show. First, we have Stephanie Nguyen. Stephanie is a designer and researcher specializing in data privacy, user experience design, and tech policies that impact marginalized and vulnerable populations. She was a research scientist at MIT Media Lab and previously led research and design at the United States Digital Service under the Departments of Education, State, and Health and Human Services. And we also have Nick Sinai. Nick is a senior fellow and former adjunct lecturer in public policy at Harvard Kennedy School. He taught an award-winning field course called Tech and Innovation in Government. Nick is also a senior advisor at Insight Partners, a venture capital firm that, in full disclosure, is an investor in user testing. Prior to Harvard and Insight, Nick was the U.S. Deputy Chief Technology Officer, where he led President Obama's open data initiatives and helped start the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program. We're so honored to have you both with us today, Stephanie and Nick, and welcome to the show. Excited to be here. It's funny, in preparing for this session, and Andy and I were chatting yesterday a bit about this, one of the things that I've kind of realized and reflected on is we've defined all these best practices around user experience and customer experience and even experiences within certain industries like the shopper experience or the traveler experience. But these topics and sort of um, themes don't seem to encompass I guess the constituent experience or simply like a person's experience when they interact with a government organization. So in your opinion, are the principles around user experience and constituent experience, are these two fundamentally different things or are they actually the same? I can start off. So just for context, most of my experience working with government agencies has been focused on big data collecting systems that need to be used by everyday people for some benefit or some service. So that might be indigenous populations with the NIH's Million Person Genome Project or, you know, immigrant families and refugees seeking to navigate the State Department systems. And any of these projects, you know, the answer to this question is that it's highly contextual it's called different things on different teams in different industries I've worked with. So in government, it might be user research. In advocacy organizations, you might be a community advocate. In academia, it's more of a qualitative or field researcher. But regardless of what you kind of call it, I think both definitions try to capture the essence of like, who are we talking about here? Who are we most focused on? And to me, The difference is really in, of course, the definition, but also the execution of the actual methods to incorporate those voices of the community who are often left out. Just building on Steph's great points there, customer experience and and user experience is a growing thing in government. And we see the federal government has created customer experience officers in a variety of agencies. The VA has a veterans experience officer. USDA has has a customer experience officer. Uh, The General Services Administration has a customer experience officer. You actually see in the president's management agenda, which is how the government is kind of managed, a cross-agency priority goal. So trying to get all the agencies to work together about how do they collect feedback from customers, constituents, and users. And those can, you know, those are veterans in the case of VA, students applying for for student loans in the case of Department of Education, right? So there's 
different different customers and users of these different citizen-facing services. It is an acknowledged thing, and Seth has, has been one of the, the leaders in, in this field. I'll also just add um, on to what Nick's saying and say, you know, there's options like whether you're administering a survey, you know, thinking about where the survey is going, what language is the survey written in, going into the community, you know, are you putting thought into, you know, care into the community, informed consent, you know, trying to instill some form of autonomy instead of, you know, taking information from a community and sharing it elsewhere without letting them know. There's so many different methods and ways to think about, you know, user research or UX research and, and actually implementing it. Yeah, one of the things I observed when I had a chance to sit in and observe one of Nick's classes at the Harvard Kennedy School was it was fascinating to me, maybe a small difference, but seemed really powerful that instead of kind of competing to try to get people to use a service, it was really enabling the ability for a really important service to be delivered at massive scale and also to the entire known set of people that would consume that. When you think about what some of these services do or what they provide, it has to really work for everyone that needs access to this. And it can just be really critical and really core to someone's needs. And you're not really competing to get them away from somebody else and deciding somebody maybe, you know, the effort is too much to go get this this demographic or this group. It was really, how do we make something really accessible and really broadly available? But I was really blown away by the impact that some of the changes could have to some of these services and just how broad the impact could be on so many people. And I think that's maybe in one ways it was a little bit different, but maybe powerful in a way that we don't always think about that that government can have such a uh, an impact on people in such a broad way. We all have to pay our taxes, right? So, you know, you think of IRS as an experience that you, you have to kind of go through or your accountant has to go through. So someone, whether it's you or uh, accountant, someone has got to go through that experience. And, you know, the IRS has made customer experience uh, a strategic goal. Social security, which, you know, serves tens of millions of, of retired and, and disabled Americans, has made customer experience uh, an important focus for them. So you you, you you see there's there's certain federal services that just touch tens of millions of Americans in really profound, important ways. And one of the ways that it, it is different, just building on what Steph was saying, is that in, in many cases, it's trying to represent everybody. The census department is, is less of a service per se, but they're out there trying to, to count everyone. When they think about marketing, they think about marketing to in 60 different languages because they, they really are trying to reach all of America. And many of the services are going to underprivileged populations or most vulnerable populations. And so you really have to be thinking about how are you going to, with full respect and, and dignity, how are you going to listen to their authentic voice and understand their needs? And so I think all the, the principles of, of user research are the same. It's just you're not necessarily focusing on the most profitable segment to fuel the growth of your business, right? It is the segments of customers that you have a, a chance to focus on could be very broad, like the census. It could be scoped to you know just veterans or students or, or or something like that. You have to think about accessibility a lot more as just one one small example. And I'll just add, like you know, this question was very specifically focused on like this concept of user research. But even in you know Nick's class, like he was intentional about building a culture where this was part of the core of actually doing the work. Like this doesn't come out of nowhere. Like in any of the agencies that Nick just mentioned or the agencies that I've worked with, like there has to be 
leadership who's bought into the idea that these voices matter and we need to integrate that into every part of the process. Yeah, that's a great point, Stephanie. And you know, it's interesting, Nick, you brought up sort of the emergence of chief customer officers across all of these different kind of agencies and organizations. Is that something that you've seen, I guess, grow and progress over the last 10, 15, 20 years? Um, you also mentioned accessibility. And it's funny you brought that up. I, I saw on Twitter, the Biden-Harris transition website has a page dedicated to how they are committed to providing web experiences that meets the needs of every visitor. And so those two things kind of together makes me wonder, like, is this something that is now kind of gaining traction? I think so. It's something that, especially in the past 10 years, has been has been growing. Previously, we, we didn't have the idea of user researchers and designers that were explicitly called out as position descriptions. They may have been doing that in other contexts and certainly in field research and ethnographic contexts, more, more in, in the social sciences. But when it, when it comes to the, the delivery of government services, and especially the delivery of government digital services, the rise of, of experience officers and the rise of user researchers and designers explicitly as position descriptions is, is something that is, is still quite new. And, and frankly, only a handful of agencies have these chief experience officers. And I'm more interested in, in the people on the ground than the chiefs. The chiefs are fantastic and they kind of set a vision and help advocate for funding for tools and best practices and guardrails and all those kinds of things. But I think it's much more important to have those user researchers and designers that are part of product teams, that are part of the, the teams that are actually building the services that are part of a core program that Congress has authorized and funded and and is serving an important mission need. We see that on, and we're talking principally right now on, on the federal civilian side, but we see it in the Defense Department too. The Air Force has, has, a, has a chief experience officer. Uh, and so this is focused on the experience of the airmen, not the recipients of the Air Force's power, but the experience of people in the Air Force, right? And their families, like that impacts our readiness and and our agility as a uh, and our ability to project power. So this idea of experience officers is something we we're also seeing in the defense department. I think there's like sort of a myth around what I like to call like pieces of design people may love to hate. So like legal compliance, accessibility, privacy, security, like all those sort of crazy things that can make design complicated but doesn't have to is typically seen as more of a new a nuisance and less of a value add. And so the more high-level stakeholders can understand the value of actually making something accessible, which would actually be more useful and usable for more of their community, is an ongoing battle that many designers and researchers in any field really are, are sort of struggling with. And so that constantly is a theme that I see in practice. Yeah, I think that's a great point. One of the conversations I enjoyed recently was someone who was talking about the difference between treating compliance as a bar to get over versus a goal, which is not the compliance itself. But for example, with accessibility, it's like, can I really build an experience that is accessible to people? Like compliance is just a goal set we all share and trying to get to a, a minimum level. What I really want is a very accessible website. And that might be you know, how someone resizes or zooms the page or does whatever if they have vision challenges or how it really in practice works with their screen reader, you know, whatever those things might be, it's less about meeting the minimum bar of the of the compliance goal. That's just ways an industry we move forward. 
but how do we really lean in and find out like, what does it feel like to be using our application or using our site if I have a different experience than maybe the people building the application itself? And how do I go provide those folks with a great experience? I like the idea of, of thinking about the compliance aspect, not as being a bar to meet, but a floor to be above. I thought that was a really thoughtful way to approach that and, and, and really does then get to something I think to your point, Stephanie, people do care about, which is most designers do want to build something that people can use, that people you know can use even if they have accessibility challenges. So uh, reframing that feels really important. I think it's a reframe, but it's also like a change in your actual habits. So like these, you know, sprint teams or any teams that are working in governments should be thinking about like, how do I integrate the lawyers, uh, the general counsels, uh, the accessibility people like on my team, essentially, how do I become their friends? And I think truly that is usually the biggest barrier to any of these things happening is like just being friends with people or like at least like getting to know them and integrating sort of their concerns and how they work in your process. Yeah, I think that's great. Kind of touched on this a little bit, but I'd I'd love to kind of dig in a bit more. So I think Andy kind of mentioned it, you know, with, with certain companies, like in the private sector, the organization is usually rallied around like a very specific persona, a buyer, a segment, but with creating experiences for the public, your audience is literally everyone. In some cases, not all cases. How have you seen teams approach that in terms of best practices? Like, where do you start when you're designing for everyone? I mean, that has to feel really overwhelming. Uh, so I'll start with this one. I mean, I think I would reshift the framing of everyone to like who actually would be using this because I don't think I don't think it's an everyone category. Like, even if it's something like you know, a public homepage for a government agency website or something, there's a certain type of someone who's going to that page for a certain reason. And so I think one opportunity is to sort of shift the framing into just being highly contextual to that scenario, and then also being very vigilant about prioritizing who are these specific users and what do they need, because there are you know, endless things you can stuff onto a website above the fold before you start scrolling. But obviously that is of no help to anyone. It's really about prioritization and really figuring out like who realistically based on current habits would be going to these sites and for what reason. Yeah, I just build on that. Even even in an agency who's got really broad audience and focus, like the, the Census Bureau, for example, they still have personas, right? So they have personas of, of journalists, right? Who are writing stories. They have personas of non nonprofit and city officials who are using census information in certain ways. Uh, they have the academic research community. And, and part of the challenge, I think, is how do you integrate that into products and services? Because there are times when you're your service will interact. And then the other piece of this is the personas of the employees, right? Like, Census hires hundreds of thousands of, of enumerators every 10 years, right? So thinking about what is their end-to-end experience from recruiting, bringing them on board, making sure that they are successfully navigating challenges out in the community. And this year, of course, we, we had a, a lot of misinformation, disinformation, and Census was thinking about how that played into the enumerator experience, as well as the experience of, of uh, people who are coming to the Census website, for example, to make sure that that enumerator was a valid person and that that was a valid reason. So you had more people saying, someone's knocking on my door. Is this really a thing, right? This year too, census was, was working on the 
digital census for largely the first time. With some minor exceptions, this was the first time they had really done it at scale. And so that presented a whole a whole other aspect to, you know, how do you go after certain demographics and, and personas and get them to fill out a digital census? I just wanted to bring up like personas are very difficult to do in general. It's always tough to really think through how do I distill a potentially very large audience into Jane, the concerned librarian whose you know key attributes is that she's tech savvy and has some motivation. I mean, like all of that is so hard to do. And part of why it's hard to do is because you're working with people who might have different perspectives of what Jane, the librarian, may or may not do. And I think it's so easy to kind of get into the mode of like, how do I do this perfectly? But, you know, personas, at least in this context, is both an art and a science of like constantly reiterating on like, who are these set of people? And how do I make sure that this is the right group that will continually use the site in this way? I think one of the challenges with personas is that they're sort of like almost these static documents, right, that kind of get passed around and, and socialized. But really what I've seen around some of, with some of our more like kind of cutting edge customers is like they are constantly bringing that persona to life in one way or another by talking to people, bringing them in while well, pre-COVID and really like helping their teams make a more human connection with somebody that falls within that segment versus just having people refer to this one pager on Jane the librarian. So I want to maybe just change gears slightly, but come off of something that Nick mentioned with the census, which was, you know, we saw this year, this kind of massive disruption of so many experiences. I mean, it it was a weird year in so many ways. Uh, And you mentioned the, you know, the census, we could also think about the recent election where, you know, we were changing how the election would even work, you know, kind of pretty rapidly as a country and, and as different states. But on a positive note, it did mean a lot of services kind of rethought their service delivery and in some ways kind of up-leveled and digitized and modernized and and really got creative. I mean, I've been, as much as this year has been painful in so many ways, there's been just kind of example after example of people being creative and being thoughtful and embracing their customers and being empathetic and doing really interesting ways to meet the needs of people they're trying to serve. And I would love to hear from, from you a little bit on areas where you've seen government do that. I'll share one of my experiences briefly, which was I had to renew my license. And I know the DMV is like the ultimate punching bag for all kind of government, you know, down talking of, of process or whatever. I mean, there's even the, I think it was the Zootopia movie where they have the sloths working at the DMV. And it's, you know, it's, it's funny and it's, it's easy to poke at. But I will say, you know, I had a an experience at our DMV here in California where I expected it to be super slow and miserable and had a huge backlog that folks were talking about. And when I went to my DMV, it was amazing. They had rethought their entire service. They had digitized a bunch of it. They had kind of digital waiting and queues. They had people outside helping manage how people were getting into the right lines. They had essentially rethought the entire layout of the way the DMV was working. And I went in and out of the DMV in 40 minutes when there was a line going down the block. And it was, I mean, I've been there before. It wasn't like this before COVID. And I kind of walked away thinking like, here's a team of people that were just really thoughtful about how to rethink this entire experience. And it wasn't just about digital. It was the whole thing. And I thought it was a good example of, you know, government can do things really well a lot of the time. And I I think, you know, I often think of our military as being an example of, of just excellence at scale, but it can happen at state and local levels as well. Are there 
stories. I think we're a little off script here, but I'm, I'm just interested in Nick's comment or, or things you know of just in terms of how, whether it's COVID related or not, government teams have really rethought an experience that can really change the way constituents interact with a service. And, and it can be really, it can change how things work. I think there's so many great untold stories. And this is one of the challenges is one that there's, there's a lot of great folks who are working inside of government who, who uh, when they're making these kinds of uh, um, service delivery improvements, these experience improvements, uh, that doesn't necessarily make front pages, right? It's the scandal and the, and the political narrative, right? That tends to drive, drive headlines. I have a, a DMV story of my own. We call it the RMV here in Massachusetts. I had broken down and a state trooper had pulled up be- behind me and he was helping me out on one, one summer afternoon. I was taking my, my girls to the science museum. And what happened was, is my registration wasn't current. And suddenly his tone changed because he figured that out. And he, I guess he'd run my license. And so he was a little irritated at me that, you know, he thought he was doing this was a distress call and he was helping a stranded motorist. And then he finds out that the registration wasn't any good. But finally, he got over his irritation and he said, hey, do you have a cell phone and a credit card? I was like, I do. And he said, well, if you go to, you know, rmv.gov or mass.gov, I think it was. And within 90 seconds, you can renew your registration. And he was right. Like, I, I literally got on there. It was very easy to find. I put in a couple pieces of information. It knew me. I put in my credit card. I got a receipt on my phone. It emailed. It came right to me. I showed it to the state trooper. He was like, great. I no longer have to take your car and put in in impoundment, et cetera. And so it was a great example of like, I needed that service at, at exactly that time. I'll give two quick ones. One, the, I think a special shout out to the VA. The VA uh, the Veterans Administration has typically been an agency that has gotten a lot of negative press over the years, uh, is one of the world's largest bureaucracies, but they really have been doing fantastic things around their digital presence. And they had over a thousand websites that have been able to consolidate into a single website and thousands of 1-800 numbers that they've been able to consolidate as well. And part of that has been really focusing on what are the services and benefits that veterans need most. So instead of you know, what did the assistant secretary of the VA say today, right? How do you move from a VA-centric uh, organization to a veteran-centric organization? And, and so the, the rise of the U.S. Digital Service, Presidential Innovation Fellows, these groups of designers and technologists and product managers inside the VA has really been inspirational. The last story I will use is uh, New Jersey. So the New Jersey Office of Innovation in times of covid when COVID first hit, they were able to get a new COVID website up that had uh, one-fifth of the entire state looking at it. And they got it up in a few days. And it provided not only information about testing, but a little screen that you could take to see if you had certain certain symptoms. They put up, uh, they got all the major employers to put up um, temporary jobs as it relates to you know logistics and big job dislocation during times of COVID. And so it was, a re- it was a really successful initiative. And back to this point about static versus dynamic, I know we were talking about that in the context of compliance, but I think that's true in COVID too, is the information keeps changing in terms of what's open, what's closed, what, you know, from the schools, from we're doing on testing and test and trace, the track and trace and all of these things. So being able to set up a, a technology platform that's going to inform the media, the residents of New Jersey uh, as the situation continues to change, because it's not it's not one and done. It's, 
you need to have the ability to to keep making that information available to the general public and getting to the outlets that they read. Sort of on that note, I mean, all of the people right now who are sort of in the field in government, state government, federal government, local, who are responding to COVID-19 right now are really trying to think through how do we get information to the public, to the media, to administrators in different governments. And that is no easy task to do. Those are all very different audiences. The data, the indicators, all the information around what public health information is available, aggregating that data across, you know, different areas right now where the data may not even be available. Like that takes a lot of, I'll use the word innovation here, but like just thought around how do we work very quickly to think through getting this information to the public as quickly as humanly possible to reduce the spread of this virus. And so in that frame, you know, I think our friends in California, Giuseppe in New Jersey, who Nick is mentioning, there's so many great people who are working across different governments that are doing this in such efficient and effective ways. Yeah, it's interesting that you you bring up that example, Stephanie, because I think in the environment that we're in, especially when sort of the news of COVID was just starting to sort of circulate and, you know, everything was pretty uncertain. I mean, it still is at the moment, but it was, you know, kind of uh, jarring at the beginning. It's like people are in this like heightened state of stress. And so things like writing your content at a lower reading level, so it's easier to comprehend for like the average, you know, adult is actually a really hard thing to do. That becomes even more important in these types of scenarios where it's not just a constituent every day sort of just going through their their world and maybe, you know, registering for or renewing their license or registration. It's actually, this is like stressful kind of life and death scenarios where you have to go and process information in a way. And so I just think it's it's an interesting and nice call out to sort of um, all of these agencies that are working to sort of provide this information and having to be so thoughtful about it so it reaches the masses. This kind of like loops back to the first question you asked just around like thinking through what you know, user research and usability testing and UX research is. And I think, you know, in a moment of crisis where there is a lot less time and a lot more pressure to get this right, things like, you know, I'll just name an indicator that I've heard, but like percentage of licensed beds occupied by suspected and or confirmed COVID-19 patients, which really means, you know, to a normal user, like don't get an optional surgery right now. Like if you're like thinking about the indicators that are actually given on a classic public health, the classic sort of more dense academic frameworks, like this is the moment where we really need to translate what all of these indicators actually mean to a human, not just list them as is, because there are so many layers of different, you know, interpretations that I need to make as a user, like even thinking through how do I, how would I guide my parents in navigating, like, can they go to the grocery store this week um, that come to mind? I'd like to call out the, the city of Boston, which I've done a lot of work with. I guess all five years I've taught my class at Harvard Kennedy School. They've been a, a client. And so the just as context, this, this class is where I put teams of, of students together with a government client, and they work trying to uh, scope out the problem, do original field re- research, user research, do some lightweight prototyping and user testing, 
and then you know ended some recommendations and uh, demonstration of prototype if they've got one. And Steph was nice enough to help me with my class while she was at the Kennedy School. Really a treat to have an experienced researcher from the field come in and and help the students with this. Uh, but the city of Boston has been one of one of my clients, and they just have been fantastic to work with. And I've learned so much from them, and, and the students have learned so much from them. To your point, I think it's eighth grade reading level is what their design standard is. And it's fun to watch the students, you know, really bright Harvard students, and most of them are graduate students, but I also have some undergraduates as well. They're so used to using big words. And when we start talking about service design, we've had some really fun projects. I mean, we've We've uh, redesigned the snow shoveling and uh, trash tickets for the public works department. And so just, you know, there were some really fun things that the students discovered was that, you know, the the envelope said Department of Treasury. It was really confusing. You had a lot of people throwing out these tickets. If you weren't weren't shoveling your snow, which means unsafe sidewalks, or if your trash was, was piling up and you got one of these public works tickets, it said Department of Treasury because that's where the money was mailed to in the city. The ticket was really hard to, to understand. So the students had a lot of fun, not only going out and learning all about that, but then working with the city to uh, not only rewrite the, the ticket and the envelope, but also pilot kind of what uh, website and mailers and so both digital and paper communications would look like and getting back to the, you know, how do we make sure that this is understandable at an eighth grade level? Um, which is not something that, you know, they're, they're coming into the class thinking about, but it's just so powerful when you're able to communicate broadly. And ultimately, you're able to accomplish whatever mission. And in this case, it was to, to you know, improve the safety and, and cleanliness of Boston streets. Interesting to think about all the machinery that's in place to have something like that be a program where you've got people out, you know, making sure things are safe. You've got the whole machinery around how all this is processed and tracked and something as basic as like, what does it say someone should do is where something like that can all, you know, succeed or fail. It really kind of speaks to the importance of, of understanding the audience. So if we shift a little bit, you know, when, when an organization, you know, participates in, in your class, for example, Nick, it's like they have some awareness of like, okay, this matters. Or, you know, when they hire someone like you, Stephanie, it's like, okay, you know, this is this is something we want to focus on. But what we hear a lot about in, in our industry broadly, and I'm sure it's true in both public and private sector, is there are folks, you know, throughout organizations that are kind of on this mission of trying to make the organization they're in more customer-centric, more constituent-centric, more kind of empathy-driven in the decision-making that they do. But it's a hard long battle that we're all in in some ways. So what piece of advice uh, you know, do you give to someone who is in an organization and they're trying to convey maybe further up the chain the importance of making empathy-driven decisions or really understanding the audience that this is impacting? What guidance would you give to folks that are working in the public sector on, on how to do that and how to be one of, how to help your organization be one of these leading organizations that thinks about that end participant in the process? I think my biggest takeaway is just be humble. You know, going into any team, you're entering an environment where there's an already existing culture, there's an existing community, there are people who may have worked there for decades who know a lot more about, you know, subject matter, processes, how people work in an organization. And, you know, I think like 
being humble and being curious, but also being able to kind of be the person who steps up and says, you know, there are zero black people in this room right now is something that the world needs more of. And so I think it really just comes down to like treating people as your equal and really trying to speak the same language. Completely echo that, amplify that. And I also say that, you know, there's a piece to this of showing rather than telling. So you could come in and say, let me tell you about uh, user experience and uh, design. And you could spend a lot of time telling an organization about how great it is, or you could go out and get some of those voices and be able to bring back both the stories and the data. And this is always a trick is sometimes organizations, especially in, in the government that are, are newer to user research and design are more used to trusting the quantitative. It's a little bit harder for them to get their arms around. Uh, well, that's just one person. That's just a qualitative data point. So being able to tell a story and, you know, with the appropriate permissions, being able to, to bring a video and bring someone, the voice of someone to that organization. So you certainly have to have the right permissions and, and all that. But I think being able to show what you mean by, by bringing those stories, those voices, and the, the underlying data of how users are actually behaving on this service, I think that can be powerful. And so it's not just design in, in the abstract or user researcher in the app, user research in the abstract. It is, hey, this is, these are, these are ways that we can improve our service and based upon the, the folks that we've heard, we've heard from. And that, that just makes it a, a much more useful and constructive and, la- and less adversarial kind of discussion. Because otherwise, it's going to be the more senior people and the people who have been, been in the organization around longer who are going to make decisions based upon what they think users want, if, they, if they're newer to this idea of user research. To kind of bring that full circle, it's funny how often I tell folks in the private sector, the best example of kind of bringing to life quantitative data with kind of stories, I think are actually politicians, right? They get up and they talk about broad-based programs they want to do, but then they tell you a story about a woman they met in Iowa who was whatever, 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 right? And, and it's powerful. We, we relate to that as people. And I think they understand if you want to shift the sentiment of, of people and get them to do something like vote for you, you have to pair data with empathy and emotion and storytelling. And so kind of, you know, it's interesting when I talk about what the public sector learns from the private sector, but I think one of the things the private sector could learn a whole lot more about from the public sector is how to think about conveying the stories of users because we actually do a really good job of that, frankly, in, in politics. You've referenced a lot of really exciting sort of innovation in, in this space. So everything from the city of Boston to the DMV, the VA was another great one you brought up. So lots of great things happening and more movement around becoming more uh, user-centered, if you will. And when you look to the future of tech and innovation in government, I mean, personally, like, what are you most excited about? What are you looking forward to? I'm excited that about the next generation, right? I have the privilege of mentoring a number of Harvard College students and, and some, some recent graduates. And so a number of my students formed a group called Coding It Forward. And it's a nonprofit focused on social impact for technologists, designers, data scientists, right? And they've been placing college students, technologists, and designers into federal agencies for a summer internship. And they have found that 
that they've gotten so excited about the the government and social impact that many of them are deciding to do either a, a full tour of, of service and, and make that their next career stop, or some of them even want to devote their entire career to public service. And so when I talk to the the younger generation, they want to have an impact and they want, they want to serve in government. And it's not, uh, it's not enough to, you know, go work in big tech or go to, go to wall street or, or, or that kind of thing. And so I'm, I'm excited about this opportunity. If we can marry up the enthusiasm of the generation that is coming out of college and find ways for them to serve. And it may be in city, state, or federal government. It may be in nonprofits, which need and the, the social philanthropy sector. I think there's tremendous uh, potential here. And we, what we need to do just globally is find, find ways to, to make sure that there's room for them and that they, they can be uh, impactful. I'm most excited because Nick mentioned sort of the future looking. I think I'm most excited about the now in pairing because, you know, in this moment of being in such hard, devastating times, people have lost their jobs, loved ones in financial distress. The Black Lives Matter movement during COVID unearthed cracks in our social system that had always existed. And like, you know, we're at a moment where the question of like, how are people going to respond is so important and it's important now. Like there's no better time right now than to think about how are you going to spend your time in helping our society get to a better place of better equality, better access to systems, better access to healthcare. Like this is such an exciting moment in time that that I think, you know, it, it's it's a time to really think through like, how can you use your skills for some purpose, even if it's on a local level? Yeah, those those are two fantastic points. And I think a, a nice high note to sort of end this conversation on. I think there's a lot of opportunity here now, as you mentioned, Stephanie, and, and in the future. You know, thank you so much, both of you, for your time and, and your perspective and your expertise. Um, we really appreciate it. It really uh, sheds a lot of light on an area that is up and coming in the world of experience as a whole. Thanks for having us. It was an honor to join you. And thanks for tuning in to the Human Insight Podcast. Want to keep the conversation going? You can visit our podcast hub, usertesting.com slash podcast, and check out past episodes. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, so you never miss a good episode. And if you enjoyed our show today, please tell a friend or leave us a rating on iTunes.